Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I will be reading from Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 1, if you'd like to turn there. Um, And let's please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. There was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went out from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, that I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see the things that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came out in a hurry, and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about the child, and all who heard it wondered at the things were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just that had been told to them.
said good morning to the Basils this morning, and they announced that they are taking bets on whether or not I'm going to bring a Christmas message today. I asked them what the over-under was on it. Shane refused to commit just in case he was wrong. I hope that the red shirt and green tie is some indication. By the way, I am grateful to Charlie and Ming for encouraging me to keep the long white beard. They said that it's uh, very reformed looking. This morning I put on a green bow tie because I thought red shirt, green bow tie, great color combination. You couldn't see the tie. (laughs) So I, I went with this. If I say, yes, I'm going to bring a kind of Christmas message, who wins? There you go. Really, every year uh, when the Christmas season comes around, just like every year when we have communion service, I try to find some different aspect of communion that we can talk about or some different aspect of Christmas that we can talk about. Now, I use that phrase Christmas begrudgingly because that is just the popular phraseology. And you know that through the years I have gained a bit of a reputation as being a bit of a Scrooge, a bit of an iconoclast where Christmas is concerned. And I get frustrated by the fact that these days Retail shopping and uh, myths like Santa Claus have so overwhelmed the real story of the birth of Christ and that he did come to the planet, which in and of itself is one of the most astounding things that has ever happened in human history. But rather than concentrate on the amazing reality that God himself took on human flesh, instead of concentrating on that, we concentrate on gift giving or family time. And I don't mind family time. I don't mind people getting together for dinner. I don't mind people giving me gifts. Hint, hint. (laughs) I don't mind any of that. I mind when all of that collectively becomes more important than the reality that God himself took on human flesh. So this morning, we're going to concentrate on the incarnation. Do you know that word incarnation? The word carn is flesh, coming to us from the Latin, from carne. It's where we get the English word carnal. In fact, if any of you have ever eaten chili with meat, you've had chili con carne. Okay, well, that's the word, flesh. The fact that God became human flesh is what we refer to as the incarnation. And that's what I want to concentrate on because the story, the biblical story, the biblical reality is so much more than just baby in a manger. He was a baby in a manger once in all of human history. And then he grew to be a man. 
And then he said a lot of really important things. But around this time of year, people concentrate on that one moment in time when he was a baby in a manger. And too often, they concentrate on that to the exclusion of all the stuff that he said when he became an adult. And so I don't want to concentrate. I don't want to get stuck in baby in a manger. Instead, I want to talk about the importance of the incarnation itself. Why did God take on human flesh? Why was Jesus here on the planet? What did he come here to do? And did he actually accomplish what he came here to do? Because if he did accomplish it, then that is the single best news you ever heard, which is why we call it the good news, the gospel. So let's start reading this morning in Luke, right where Christian was reading from. But we're going to start in Luke 1, because... This particular birth was predicted by the prophets in the Old Testament, as we're going to see. This particular birth, this particular incarnation of God in human flesh, is such a unique event that it caused even heaven to celebrate. We're going to start reading in Luke 1, starting at verse 26. Now in the sixth month, that's the sixth month, of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what sort of salutation that might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua. That name means God who saves. Right away, when the angel spoke to Mary to let her know that she was going to bear a child, though she was a virgin, right away he was given a very specific name because from the very beginning, God had the intention that the incarnation was going to result in the salvation of his people. And that's why he was given the name God Saves. Behold, you will conceive in your womb, bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. What you're going to see again this morning is that in the so-called Christmas story, there are all these validations of the rest of the theology that we have been teaching and studying here, not only the absolute sovereignty of God, but God's consistency in the promises that he has made to his people Israel. Notice that right away, as the declaration is going forward that Jesus, God saves, is going to be born to a virgin, 
he is also going to be given the throne of his father David. That's part of the declaration right away. Well, what is the importance of that phrase? What's the importance of he'll be given the throne of his father David? That takes you all the way back to the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant was a promise that God made with David that one of his descendants was going to sit on a throne and rule from Jerusalem on the throne of David. And here is the angel Gabriel talking to Mary, letting her know the Christmas story and saying to her that one of the reasons for the incarnation is that this particular one, this Savior, is going to receive the throne of his father David. God has just reaffirmed to Mary, who is a Jew, that all the promises that he has made to Israel are still good and still valid and going to be accomplished through this one. That's the reason for the incarnation. First off, the consistency of the promises of God. We are told later that all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen. In him, verily, verily, this shall be so. So God has an entire, what we call Old Testament, full of promises to particular people. Jesus comes along and God says, he's the validation, he's the verification that I'm actually going to do everything that I've promised I'm going to do. That's the declaration from the very beginning. That's number one reason for the incarnation. Am I talking really fast? It's because I've got three pages of notes I haven't touched yet. And I've got a long way to go and very little time to get there. So just hold on to your brain and we're just going to keep flying forward. He will reign over, look at verse 33, since he's going to be given the throne of his father David. He will reign, be a king, over the house of Jacob forever. Who's the house of Jacob? Israel. Israel. You may recall that just last week, we read the prophecy from Daniel that Christ was going to have a kingdom. He was going to establish a kingdom that was a never-ending kingdom. And that kingdom, according to Gabriel, the same angel, talking to Daniel, that kingdom was going to be given to Daniel's people. Who's that? Israel. Same people. Nothing in the Old Testament is eradicated by the coming of Jesus. Rather, it is verified. It is made definite and solid, and he is the one through whom that is going to occur. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So whether you're looking at Paul talking about it after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, whether you're talking about Daniel predicting it 700 years before Christ comes to the planet, or whether you're talking about the angel Gabriel at the moment of the declaration to Jesus that she's going to have a baby called God Saves, all three of them say the same thing. He's going to rule over Jacob forever, and of his kingdom, there's going to be no end. That is the Christmas story. You getting it? Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. 
And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, because nothing will be impossible for God. There's as good a declaration of God's sovereignty as you need anywhere, and it came right from Gabriel to Mary at the point where Christ was being announced. Nothing's impossible for God. Aren't you glad for that, by the way? Because when I think about me, which I try not to do, and I don't encourage any of the rest of you to do that, but when I think about me, I think, how can God save somebody like me? Because I know me. I know where I've been. I know what I've done. I know what I think. I know the ugliness of my stupid little brain. I'm so happy that nothing is impossible for God, that he can even save a sinner like me, and he sent his son to the planet and gave him the name, the God who saves. I like that a lot. Merry Christmas. (laughs) All right, so now chapter 2. Now, Christian read for us. Where'd you stop, Christian? Good. Let's start reading at verse 21. When eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called, what a surprise, Jesus because it's at his circumcision that you named the child. And he was named according to what the angel said his name should be. His name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. For as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male child that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And they came to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. And he was looking for something specific. He was in the temple as a devout man looking for something specific. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Two equatable terms are being used there. The Christ who belongs to God and the consolation of Israel. Those are both referring to Jesus Christ. And he was promised that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and he blessed God and he said, Now, Lord... Thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That's the name Jesus. He is confirmed now by a prophet standing, a devout man in the temple, who confirms that this is the very Son of God in human flesh. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people, Israel. The promises of Israel are still good. The promises of Israel are confirmed not only by the angel Gabriel, but now by the prophecy in the temple. And his father and his mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, notice this, we're talking about the incarnation. This is why the incarnation happened. Why is there a baby in a manger? Why was he born in human flesh to begin with? Simeon is going to tell her right from the start, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He told Mary, a mom of an eight-day-old child, because of this child, your own heart and soul are going to be pierced. You're going to agonize over this child because he is appointed for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at the very moment, at that very moment, as Simeon was saying these things to Mary, at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. So Jesus the Son of God, the baby in a manger, is the Redeemer of Israel. All the way through the Old Testament, you see promises of God's restoration of Israel, redemption of Israel. It's all going to be accomplished through him. That moment of the joining of God's personhood, of God's nature in human flesh, is something that we know theologically as the hypostatic union. Learn it, use it in a sentence later, impress your friends. Hypostatic simply means underneath his stasis, his natural state of being. You know, toward the end of his life, Jesus prayed to God and said, restore me to the glory that I had with you before the worlds were formed. Okay, that's his natural state. His natural state is to be at the right hand of God the Father. His natural state is living in heavenly splendor. And yet, he took on human flesh. He took on a form that was below himself. That's the word hypo, just like a hypodermic needle means under skin. The hypostatic union was Jesus taking on a form below himself, taking on human flesh and It wasn't a subtraction of himself. He was still fully God. He was still everything that he was, everyone that he was. 
but he took on flesh. It was an addition. It was something that was necessary for him to have in order for him to be a sacrifice sufficient to save human flesh. That is why the hypostatic union, that is why the incarnation occurred. That's what John says at the very beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the word, the logos, the speaking agency of God, Jesus Christ himself. In the beginning was the word, and that word was with God, and that word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So John tells us at the very beginning of his gospel that this one unique human being was in fact God incarnate who didn't lessen himself at all. Instead, he added to himself human flesh and as a result, he was able to walk and talk among the very people he was going to save. It's astounding that God himself would send his own son to take up human flesh. Okay, so Paul then ponders the significance of that really astounding hypostatic union and writes this in Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, as he already existed in the form of God. He was already fully God, completely God. And yet being completely in the character, the nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or clung onto. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant, a human being, and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. That's what Simeon was talking about. That's why Mary was going to grieve over him, was that her child was going to be killed as a sin sacrifice, was going to bear the wrath of God on the cross for us And he did it most willingly. He humbled himself and became obedient to God to the point of death, even death on the cross. And remember that Paul started this whole section by saying, now have this attitude in yourselves that Jesus had when he came to the planet. He is your example. He's the one who came to the planet, humbled himself, and died for you. Weasley little, lousy little, rebellious little, sinful, you. He didn't do it because you were the good one. He didn't do it because it wouldn't be heaven without you. He did it out of humility and obedience to God. And Paul says, now think like that. Be like that. Be willing to sacrifice like that. Be willing to look after each other the same way that Jesus looked after you. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, by becoming obedient to the point of death and death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord Kurios to the glory of God the Father. That's the purpose of the incarnation. He came to die. He was born in a manger, humble beginnings. He grew to be a man so that he could teach us the word of God, something we would not know unless somebody told us. And the very son of God, who knew heaven like he knew the back of his hand, came here and told us what heaven was like, what God was like, what sin is about, and how to be eternally redeemed. He told us all that stuff, and then he died under the weight and the penalty of the wrath of God, thereby redeeming his people, Israel and Gentiles, who have faith similar to the faith of Abraham. And then he rose again, demonstrating that God accepted his perfect sacrifice. And now he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, restored to the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. And for that reason, since he became a man, since he sacrificed himself, since he was that obedient to God, for that reason God said, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that he's it. He's Kurios. He's Lord. Not us. He alone, he uniquely is our Redeemer, our Savior, so much more than a baby in a manger. You get my point? Because I ain't close to done. (laughs) The emphasis in the incarnation, the emphasis in this hypostatic union... The emphasis is on the condescension of Jesus, on his self-abasement. It's not that he divested himself of anything in his divine nature, and that's why we call him the God-man. He was fully flesh. He was fully a man, so human, in fact, that according to Luke 8.23, he needed sleep. That's a human characteristic. That's a human characteristic I suffer from on a very regular basis. <laughs> he needed food, according to Matthew 4.2. He perspired, according to Luke 22.43. He bled, according to John 19.34. He expressed emotions, including joy. You find that in John 15, 11. He expressed sorrow in Matthew 26, 37. He expressed anger in Mark 3, 5. During his life, Jesus referred to himself as a man. You can read that in John 8, 40, for example. He has a human lineage. He has a human genealogy. Both Matthew and Luke tell you the genealogy through which he came. Everything about him in the description of him is that he is fully man. He has all the characteristics of flesh. He has all the characteristics of humanity. And yet he was fully God because he also went around saying and doing things that people don't get to say and do unless they're God. 
He walked around saying, there's something wrong with the whole world that can only be set right by my death. Do you get to say that? No, he's the unique one. He's the one who gets to say, what you think of me determines your eternity. I'm so glad that none of you can say that. (laughs) I'm so glad that my thoughts about you does not determine my eternity. But your thoughts about Christ, he is the unique and holy one. God said, you don't worship anyone but God. That's written right into the Ten Commandments. The Big Ten right away. You don't worship any other gods. Jesus accepted worship. He saw himself as God. He understood himself as God. And no other human being gets away with that. He was fully God. He was fully man. That incarnation, as I said earlier, is predicted by the prophets. It's it's essential to the very character, the very nature of Christ. The writer of Hebrews describes it this way. In Hebrews 10.5, he starts quoting from Psalm 40 and says, Therefore, when he, Christ, came into the world, he said, You have not desired sacrifice and offering, but you have prepared a body for me. And you have not taken pleasure in whole burnt offerings or offerings for sin. Then I said, Behold, I have come. It is written of me in the scroll of the book. I have come to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken any pleasure in them, these things that were offered according to the law. But then Christ said, behold, I have come to do your will. The writer of Hebrews says that is the evidence that Christ takes away the first, the law, in order to establish the second, the new covenant. That's the other reason for the incarnation, is that all human beings were trapped under a law that nobody could perform. All the law could do was condemn you and tell you how bad you were. What the law could never do for you was bow down and pat you on the head, give you some noogies and say, you know, you tried. Nice work. The law could never comfort you. The law could never succor you and say, it's all right. You gave it a good effort. All the law could do is condemn you. And that covenant of law stood against God's people. God's people, Israel in particular, but God's judgment against all humanity stood. So Jesus Christ came in order to take away that law and the punishment that came by that law and instead establish the new covenant of salvation by grace through faith. And he did it by saying to God, 
I understand now that you don't want offerings and sacrifices and animals. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But by one sacrifice, by Christ's single sacrifice, he perfected forever. This is Hebrews 10.14. Go look it up yourself. He perfected forever those that he sanctified. He was willing to come to the planet as the God-man in order to accomplish what the blood of bulls and the blood of goats and sin sacrifices and that constant pouring of blood out of the temple that could never accomplish salvation and redemption for people. So Jesus said, I'll do it. That's why Christmas. You get it? Because I ain't close to done. Since we're in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, I'm going to start reading at verse 14. This is just so important to get a hold of. The high priest, the Old Testament high priest, would do the sacrifices, would kill the animals, would kill the bulls and the goats and the pigeons and the doves and slaughter the sheep. The Old Testament priest would do all that It never accomplished full redemption from sin. The writer of Hebrews again says, if it ever had accomplished redemption from sin, then they would have quit doing it because they would have said, there, we did it. We've accomplished redemption. But the reason that they had to keep doing it and keep doing it nonstop continually is because none of them ever actually accomplished that kind of redemption. So what are the priests like? Well, all the priests can do is just stand there and continually do the work, the service of the temple, sacrifice the animals, but they don't know you. They don't care about you. You're just another person with an animal to be killed. But Jesus came. The omniscient God took on human flesh so that he could be your, not just priest, but high priest, to intercede between you and God, and importantly, because he's flesh, he can also feel your infirmities. He knows your incapabilities. He can understand and relate to the difficulties of flesh. It is more than just, he knows we're only dust but that he could feel it, that he experienced it, that he lived it. So the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, since that's the fact, let us hold fast, hang on tight to our profession of faith in him. For we do not have a high priest like those Old Testament high priests. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. All the law could do, all the high priest that performed by the law could do was tell you how wrong you were, how guilty you were, how sinful you were. But it wasn't their job to sympathize with you. Like I said, the law could never bow down and say, there, there, it's going to be okay. The law could only hold you guilty. The priests of the law could not sympathize with you. And yet we have this high priest 
who has passed through the heavens. And so we profess our faith in him. We hold on to our hope in him. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. Okay, he didn't fold under the weight of sin. But he knows what it is. He knows our temptations. He knows our difficulties. He knows our fleshliness. And he can sympathize with our weakness. That's probably the best news you're going to hear this morning. To know that Jesus, the one sitting at the right hand of God the Father at this very moment, knows what you're going through. He knows it's hard. He knows it's tough. He knows that you are bombarded with temptations. And he knows you're going to fail. And he understands that, which is why he is without sin, so that he is a perfect sacrifice, so that God would accept his sacrifice as a sin offering, so that we will not be condemned for our sin. And why is that the case? Because our high priest sympathizes with us and knows what it's like to be flesh. That's the reason for the incarnation. Merry Christmas. Again, so much more than baby in a manger. The incarnation of Jesus Christ resulted in your salvation. Oh, yippee, baby in a manger. I'm so glad there was a baby in a manger, but I'm glad he didn't stay there. I'm so glad that he told us about God. And that he willingly gave himself, that he would go to God and say, here I am, I'll do it. I'll accomplish what no other sacrifice could accomplish. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things, even as we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us... Now this is about our reaction to that reality. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. (sighs) Astounding. We get to go to the very throne of God The God who is described as encased in a light that no man can approach. If you were to just approach him on your own merit, on your own law keeping, on your own ability, instant frying. No man can approach him. He's righteous and holy and just and eternal. And you're not. If you were to approach that God, you would be nothing but fearful. You'd be nothing but terrified by that God. And yet, because Jesus was human flesh, and because he was a fully sufficient, adequate sacrifice that God accepted utterly and completely on your behalf, for that reason, the conclusion of what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, therefore, let us draw near with confidence. Confidence.
confidence to the throne of grace. We get to go talk to God. We get to go be in God's presence. And we're confident as we stand there that we're not going to fry. And why are we that confident? It's not because of us. It's not because of you. It's not because of what you did. It's because of him. It's because of Jesus Christ who took on human flesh, who willingly laid himself down as a substitute for you. You can see why the writer of Hebrews keeps saying, hold on to that. Don't let go of that. Don't loosen your grip on that. Because I know you. I know me. I know people. Every once in a while, you're going to think, yeah, but I'm kind of good. Yeah, but I do some good stuff. You know, it's mostly Jesus, but I, I added my 2%. Instead, what you have to understand and hang on to and not let go of, the thing you have to cling to, is that the God-man is the fully sufficient Savior and that you added nothing to your salvation and everything to your condemnation. And yet you are invited to stand at the throne of grace and to find grace to help you in your time of need. Because he sympathizes with you and he knows your just flesh. And how does he know the weakness of the flesh? He became flesh. That's the incarnation. In becoming human, Jesus could identify with the human experience. That included suffering and temptation. He understands that firsthand. And yet, Even though he's fully God, he was fully man. And to this very day, get this, this is a tough one for us. At this very moment, there is a man in human flesh sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us when we fail. That's completely unique. Here, I'll prove it to you. In Luke 24, starting at verse 36, The apostles were all gathered, and Thomas, who we still know is doubting Thomas, who has to be in heaven right now going, can't we get over that nickname? Can we we let go of that? But Thomas said, I'm not going to believe that he's risen until I can put my fingers in the holes in his hands and the holes in his side. That's the only way I'm going to believe that he's actually risen again. Starting at verse 36. Now, while they were telling these things about the resurrection of Christ and how they had seen him, Jesus himself suddenly stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you frightened? And why are doubts arising in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. That it is I myself. Touch me and see. Because a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you plainly see that I have. After his resurrection, Jesus pointed out, I still have flesh and bone. I still have the human characteristics that I took on in the hypostatic union. There's a man sitting 
at the right hand of God right now. A man who can sympathize with our weaknesses. A man who ever lives to make intercession for us when we fail because he knows what it's like to be us. See my hands and my feet. That it is I myself. Touch me and see because a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you plainly see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and astonishment, he said to them, do you have anything to eat? What an interesting question for the Lord of glory. Okay, what was he doing? He was proving to them that he was not just a spirit. So they served him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in front of them. I can imagine him thinking, see? See, it's me. It's really me. You think you're seeing a ghost. Ghosts don't eat fish. Watch me. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's me. Incarnate me. Hypostatic union me. Flesh and blood, God, man, me. It is because of the incarnation that there is this man in heaven who can feel our infirmities, one who has flesh and bone, and he is sitting, as I said, on the right hand of God. The incarnation enables us to experience a relationship with God that is marked by forgiveness and grace and hope of eternal life. You would have none of those things were it not for the incarnation. If there weren't a baby in a manger, you have no hope. John 1.14, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That's a tough one for us to wrap our minds around. Okay, he's God, and he's flesh, and he's the sacrifice, and he's the judge, and he's sitting at the right hand of God, and he has flesh and bone, and apparently likes fish. He's that? That's hard for us to get a hold of. Well, Paul, writing to Timothy, admits. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Yeah, it's tough to wrap your head around. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested, he was seen in the flesh. And he was vindicated by the Spirit. And he was seen by angels. And he was proclaimed among the nations. And he was believed on in the world. And he was taken up into glory. That's the essence of what the gospel message is. That God became man. He was our sacrifice He resurrected. He was taken up into glory. And the promise is, as we've been reading in 2 Thessalonians, the promise is he's going to return in the clouds and we're going to join him to meet him in the clouds. So will we ever be with the Lord. That's mysterious stuff. But let me ask you a question. Was there a baby in a manger? Yes. Yeah. Did he grow up and do miracles? Yes. Yeah. Did he die? Yes. yes. Yeah. Did he raise again? Yes. Did he sail off the planet? Yeah. Those things all actually occurred in time and history here on planet Earth. 
So the rest of it is going to happen in time, in the future, here on planet Earth. You have today promises of your eternity that are based on the incarnation of a baby in a manger. If that happened, the rest of it is going to happen. Galatians 4, 4, Paul tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So that he could redeem those that were under the law. The God-man incarnation is essential to Christianity. God the Son incarnate is utterly and completely unique. And he alone is Lord and Savior. Let me say that better. He alone is your Lord and Savior. And if you deny him, if you turn your back on him, if you go search for any other means of salvation and redemption then you're going to be judged by God because he himself sent his own son as a sacrifice for you and he expects your complete fidelity to him. This Jesus thing, this Christianity thing is so much bigger, so much grander than just baby in a manger. On uh, Facebook, that's right, I'm going to talk about Facebook in this message. Um, on Facebook yesterday, I posted a quote from Augustine of Hippo, but it perfectly encapsulated, when I came across this quote, it perfectly encapsulated everything that I've been trying to say this morning. I could have saved you a whole lot of time and just read this to you. But listen to what he wrote. Man's maker was made man so that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread from heaven might hunger. That the fountain of living waters would thirst. That the light of the world would sleep. And that the way would be tired on his journey. That truth might be accused by false witnesses. That the teacher would be beaten with whips. That the very foundation would be suspended on wood. That the strength would become weak that the healer would become wounded so that life would die. That's the reason for the incarnation. That's why man's maker became man. He became man so that he could redeem his people in obedience to the Father's will. And he did away not only with the law that would condemn us, but he took away the automatic curse that's attendant to the law and instead gave us the gospel of grace and he made us ambassadors for him here on planet earth 
to tell people, men and women, boys and girls, sinners all, to tell them that there is a way to live in eternity with God and is through grace, through faith, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why he took on flesh. That's why he came to the planet. Merry Christmas. I'm done. Go, Jeff.
appreciate you listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.